0: Welcome to the History of the Americans podcast, episode number 10. I'm your host, Jack Henneman, and this episode is Giovanni de Verrazzano and the Exploration of the Atlantic Coast. We are recording this episode on February 24th, 2021, in Austin, Texas. There's a big suspension bridge at the entrance to the Upper Bay of New York Harbor, connecting Staten Island to Brooklyn. I knew about the Verrazzano-Narrows Bridge even as a child, for though I grew up in Iowa, my parents were New Yorkers and we would visit during the long academic summers. Bizarrely though, I have no clue when I learned that Verrazzano was one of the early European explorers of North America, and not just some revered Italian-American mayor or union boss in New York or some such thing. I'm quite sure I didn't learn it in, you know, the last couple of weeks as I've been reading about Verrazzano but I have no idea when I first knew it. Apparently, my ignorance is not uncommon. The name of the bridge was spelled incorrectly with only one Z for the first 53 years of its existence, finally corrected in 2018. According to Wikipedia, this was because, wait for it, that was the spelling of Verrazano's name in the construction contract. Now, I'm the first person to admit that my spelling has improved with spell check and the internet and stuff. But if Verrazano were well known in the 1950s, one would think that the Italian Historical Association of America, then based in Brooklyn and very involved in the naming of the bridge, would have gotten in both Zs. I'll put a link to an amusing article about the naming and renaming of the bridge in the show notes and on the the historyoftheamericans.com. There are two other things that seem to confirm Verrazano's relative obscurity. First, apart from the bridge, I could find only one other use of Verrazano in an American place name, a Verrazano drive in a development in Wilmington, North Carolina. Hernando de Soto, with whom we will consort a few episodes down the road, has all sorts of towns and counties and at least 13 streets named after him. And he was a much worse guy. Which brings me to the second thing. As you are about to hear, Verrazano is the sort of person who you would expect to be out of favor in certain circles, enough out of favor that one would think activists would call for the renaming of the Narrows Bridge entirely. But I couldn't find any real attempt to do so, even as recently as 2018 when New York State went to the considerable expense of changing the spelling on hundreds of road signs to add that last Z. Even people who are keen to rename things, to reframe the legacy of flawed historical figures seem to have ignored Verrazzano, at least so far. We warm our hands over small fires. So let's roll back 500 years and carry on. By 1522, 30 years after Columbus's first contact, the Spanish had conquered Mexico and most of the Caribbean and had established Panama City, the first European settlement on the Pacific coast of the Western Hemisphere. The English king Henry VII hired the Italian Giovanni Caboto, we Anglophones know him as John Cabot, to look for a northwest passage to Asia. And in search of that, he had discovered, air quotes, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, Newfoundland in 1497. And then... In September 1522, the 18 survivors out of 239 of the Magellan Circumnavigation Expedition arrived in Seville, establishing once and for all that the newly discovered lands to the west had nothing whatsoever to do with Asia. Nevertheless, the major powers of Europe were still more interested in trade with Asia than in the development of the Western Hemisphere, notwithstanding the gold that Spain had found there. Just as Columbus's discovery had catalyzed John Cabot's expedition, the new information from the Magellan fleet survivors catalyzed missions to discover an easier route than the stormy Strait of Magellan. The Spanish gains were making their geopolitical competitors nervous. The English and Portuguese were engaged in the new world of varying degrees, so now it was France's turn to fear falling behind. France's king, Francis I, known to the locals as Francois Premier, had overextended himself fiscally and emotionally in foreign wars and love affairs, but was nevertheless concerned with France's capacities at sea. He oversaw the fortification and reconstruction of France's Atlantic ports and the expansion of French shipping. And his mother-in-law, Louise de Savoie took a keen interest in Magellan's voyage and invited one of the Italian gentlemen who made it all the way to visit her at court. Presumably, King Francis was there. We know as well that Francis was rather famously irritated with the papal division of the Western Hemisphere into the Spanish and Portuguese territories. Of the Treaty of Tordesillas, which purported to divide the new world between the two Iberian powers... Francis supposedly said, quote, "The sun shines for me as it does for others. I would very much like to see the clause of Adam’s will, by which I should be denied my share of the world." By this point, the Spanish and Portuguese had mapped the entire coast of the Americas from Florida to Patagonia, and had found no passage north of the Strait of Magellan. Cabot and miscellaneous Portuguese had been to the far north, but had not pushed far into the gap between Labrador and Greenland, which remained as unmapped as it was forbidding. That left unexplored the whole stretch of North America from Maine to Georgia, some 13 degrees of latitude, which no European knew anything about even 30 years after Columbus. There remained, therefore, a lot of geography for a passage to the Pacific, or even, quite plausibly, open sea all the way through, It also happened that in Lyon, France's second city, there was a wealthy and influential group of Italian bankers who had thought all of this through and raised a syndicate to underwrite the exploration of that stretch of the North American coast. If successful in finding a straighter shot to Asia, the profits would have been massive. They backed Verrazzano, an established and accomplished mariner who had made a reputation for himself in the French port of Dieppe, Now we'll turn to Samuel Eliot Morrison yet again, this time from his The Great Explorers, The European Discovery of America. Francois Premier, one year younger than Henry VIII, resembled in many respects his English cousin, whom he met formally on the field of the cloth of gold in 1520. Both were handsome, gallant, and courageous. Both were arbitrary, arrogant, and tolerant. Both patronized arts and letters. The French king differed from the English monarch in nourishing a strong pro-Italian bias. He invited Leonardo da Vinci, Cellini, Solario, and Primaticcio to his court. For army generals, he chose a Pallavicini and a Montecicoli. He had Italian ministers, bankers, mistresses, and chefs de cuisine. And since the Spanish sovereigns had patronized an Italian navigator named Colombo, and Henry VII supported another named Capito, the king of France must have one too. Hence, verrazzano There you have it. Italian bankers and an Italophile and ambitious French king, an adventuresome young explorer raring to go. With four ships, including a flagship belonging to King Francis, the 100-ton, 50-man La Dauphine, which sounds like a street in New Orleans, Verrazano headed straight west on a northerly route in the fall of 1523. That was a poor choice, since the fleet hit rough weather that sank two of the ships and forced La Dauphine back to port with the last remaining ship, La Normande. After repairs and perhaps a new appreciation for sailing the North Atlantic in winter, Verrazano rebooted to the south with just La Dauphine and La Normande, heading to Portuguese Madeira rather than to the Spanish canaries, to avoid, as Obi-Wan Kenobi would put it, imperial entanglements. Let's just say we'd like to avoid any imperial entanglements. French privateers had already been hunting Spanish treasure ships, and Spanish man of war were looking for the fleur-de-lis. Oh, and that was this podcast' very first special effect. I'm super excited about it. The early 16th century explorers were so courageous, it almost embarrasses me to think of the soft, risk-free life I've been fortunate to live. I wonder how much of that essentially medieval courage came from believing in God in heaven, and how much simply reflected the vastly more interesting trade-off between exploration and the considerable risks in everyday, ordinary, boring life. Compared to the alternatives running a very high risk of death to see an entirely new world, might seem like a very good trade. For reasons that are not entirely clear, La Normande did not continue past Madeira. So on January 17, 1524, La Dauphine left the old world behind by herself. Verrazano, who had planned to explore with four ships, now had all his eggs in the hold of just one. This trip was not as fast or smooth as Columbus's 33-day crossing in the fall of 1492, and 42 days along a severe storm put La Dauphine in jeopardy. The ship survived, which was ultimately important for our understanding of early Indian societies, and Verrazzano lived through the moment, preserved for a much more gruesome death, which we will reveal at the end of this episode. In any case, after bouncing around a bit, Verrazzano made landfall at or near Cape Fear, North Carolina, which no doubt explains why the only street in America named after him is in nearby Wilmington. Verrazzano logged his latitude, 34 degrees north, like Carthage and Damascus, in his words. Close enough, anyway. Explorers of the day often compared New World latitudes to famous Old World places, to make their findings more relatable to the folks back home. From there, he headed south for 50 leagues, assume about 125 statute miles, before reversing course in order not to meet with the Spaniards. Verrazano reported that he had not seen any harbors, so he probably turned north before seeing the future site of Charleston, still well short of the modern Florida border. He returned to the Cape Fear area and sent a landing party ashore in a boat. A bunch of apparently fascinated Indians arrived by canoe, quote, hard to the seaside, seeming to rejoice very much at the sight of us and marveling greatly at our apparel, shape, and whiteness, showed us by sundry signs where we might most commodiously come a land with our boat, offering us also of their victuals to eat. These Indians had apparently not yet learned to fear Europeans, which suggests to me, anyway, that there had not been much interaction with Floridian Indians, who were well aware of the threat the Spanish posed. We will return to this first encounter after a brief digression. You might well ask, how do we know this and everything else Verrazano reported? Through the efforts of Richard Hacklett, in some ways one of the most important figures in the history of the Americans, and yet... Very few Americans, at least those who are not historians, have ever heard of him. Hacklett, spelled H-A-K-L-U-Y-T, in case you want to look him up, was the essential English chronicler of early European voyages of discovery. Hacklett lived from 1550 to 1616, during which time he produced a vast multi-volume history, actually more than one, of English and European discovery with names like Diverse voyages touching the discovery of America and the lands adjacent unto the same, made first of all by our Englishmen and afterwards by the Frenchmen and Britons, with two maps annexed hereunto. For our purposes today, Hacklett translated Verrazzano's report to Francis I into English, even before it was translated into French. Presumably Francis the Italophile was delighted to read it in the original Italian and no rush to translate it himself. So Hacklett is important because a great deal of what we know about early exploration was preserved on account of his work. More consequentially, Hacklett also became a persuasive advocate for English exploration and, as we shall see some indeterminate number of episodes hence, the most influential voice in English politics in support of the Virginia Company and its expedition to Jamestown. Without Hacklett, it's not at all clear that it would have been the English who settled the Atlantic coast north of Florida. Back to Verrazzano, whose description of his own first contact repeats a theme we have hit before, how physically impressive the Indians were in these encounters before their societies were ripped apart by disease. Quoting Verrazano per hacklet, These people go altogether naked, except that they cover their privy parts with certain skins of beasts like unto Martins, which they fasten into a narrow girdle made of grass, very artfully wrought, hanged about with tails of diverse other beasts, which round about their bodies, hang dangling down to their knees. Some of them wear garlands of bird's feathers. The people are of color russet and not much unlike the Saracens. Their hair is black, thick, and not very long, which they tie together in a knot behind and wear it like a tail. They are well-featured in their limbs, of average stature and commonly somewhat bigger than we, broad-breasted, strong arms, their legs and other parts of their bodies well-fashioned, and they are disfigured in nothing, saving what they have somewhat broad visages, and yet not all of them, for we saw many of them well-favored, having black and great eyes, with a cheerful and steady look, not strong of body, yet sharp-witted, nimble, and great runners, or as we could learn by experience. And in those last two qualities, they are like to them of the uttermost parts of China. You can hear, I am sure, the similarities with Columbus's descriptions of his various first encounters, which we discussed in the third and fourth episodes on Columbus. And note the reference to China. Verrazano had without doubt read Marco Polo. La Dauphine continued north along the outer banks and somewhere between Cape Lookout and just north of Cape Hatteras, anchored and sent a landing party to fetch water. Quoting Verrazano per hacklet again, while we rowed on that coast, partly because it had no harbor and for what we wanted water, we sent our boat ashore with 25 men, where, by reason of great and continual waves that beat against the shore... Being an open coast without succor, none of our men could possibly go ashore without losing our boat. We saw there many people, which came unto the shore, making diverse signs of friendship and showing that they were content. We should come aland, and by trial we found them to be very courteous and gentle, and your majesty shall understand by the success. To the intent we might send them of our things— which the Indians commonly desire and esteem, as sheets of paper, glasses, bells, and such trifles, we sent a young man, one of our mariners ashore, who, swimming toward them, cast the things upon the shore. Seeking afterwards to return, he was with such violence of the waves beaten upon the shore that he was so bruised that he lay there almost dead, which the Indians, perceiving, ran to catch him, and drawing him out, they carried him a little way off from the sea." The young man cried out, apparently afraid he would be killed. But the Indians laid him on a sand dune to dry in the sun, stripped him down, and built a big fire. Verrazano reports that the crew, watching all this from a distance, expected the Indians to roast him and eat him. But the young man, having recovered his strength and having stayed while with them, showed them by signs that he was desirous to return to the ship. And they, with great love, "'clapping him fast about with many embracings, "'accompanying him under the sea. "'And to put him in more assurance, leaving him alone, "'they went unto a high ground and stood there, "'beholding him until he was entered into the boat. "'This young man observed, as we did also, "'that these are of color, including to black. "'And the others were, with their flesh very shining, "'of average stature, handsome visage, and delicate limbs.' and of very little strength but of prompt wit. The next day, still farther north, Verazano made an observational error that may seem ludicrous to us, but which persisted on some maps for more than a century. Sailing along the outer banks north of Hatteras, he could see glimpses of Pamlico Sound, which at various points is 30 or more miles wide. From the mast of his ship, Verazano reported that they could see the Pacific Ocean, accessible only by the narrow isthmus of the Outer Banks. Now, this may seem like a silly mistake, and Verazzano could find no point of ingress with sufficient depth to confirm it. Morrison sympathetically points out that the Pemlico Sound really does look like an ocean. You may sail for 20 miles south and 20 miles north of Cape Hatteras without seeing the mainland from the deck or mast of a small sailing ship. We flew Verrazzano's route on a beautiful June day with high visibility at an altitude of 200 feet, and for 50 miles could see no land west of the banks. And of course, explorers, like everybody else risking life and limb in service of conviction, see what they hope to see. La Dauphine continued north and encountered shoreline much more beautiful than the rest of the outer banks. By Verrazzano's account, hilly and covered with very tall trees. Verrazzano named it Arcadia after the Arcadia of Greece, which presumably Verrazzano thought reminiscent. Samuel Elliott Morrison, having flown along the coast from Cape Fear to Barnegat, New Jersey, was persuaded beyond doubt that Verrazzano's Arcadia was actually Kitty Hawk, the most famous place along that stretch for entirely different reasons. Verrazano's name Arcadia survives, but mapmakers continually moved it north and east until it became the French term for Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, and the northern part of Maine. And eventually, it evolved into the name for the Acadian refugees who fled from there to Louisiana in the Great Expulsion during the French and Indian War. So, but for Verrazano, we wouldn't have raging Cajuns, And that would be an incalculable loss. We'd have to call them Frenzied French or something. Doesn't ring the same way. It was also at Kitty Hawk that the French kidnapped their first Indian. Verrazano's account is a bit cringy for we modern people to read. That we might have some knowledge thereof, we sent 20 men a land, which entered into the country about two leagues, and they found that the people were fled to the woods for fear. They saw only one old woman with a young maid of 18 or 20 years old, which, seeing our company, hid themselves in the grass for fear. The old woman carried two infants on her shoulders and behind her neck a child of eight years old. The young woman was laden likewise with as many But when our men came unto them, the women cried out. The old woman made signs that the men were fled into the woods as soon as they saw us, to quiet them and to win their favor. Our men gave them such victuals as they had with them to eat, which the old woman received thankfully, but the young woman disdained them all and threw them disdainfully on the ground. They took a child from the old woman to bring into France, and going about to take the young woman, who was very beautiful and of tall stature, They could not possibly, for the great outcries that she made, bring her to the sea. And especially having great woods to pass through and being far from the ship, we purposed to leave her behind, bearing away the child only. I hate to think how scared that kid was. And there's nothing in the historical record about what might have happened to him. We don't know if he grew up as a Frenchman or died somewhere along the way. Still, in the vicinity of Kitty Hawk, Verrazano's men missed an opportunity to smoke a peace pipe. Approaching near a group of 20 Frenchmen, an Indian man thrust toward them a burning stick as if to offer us fire. Historians, including Morrison, believe that this must have been a lighted tobacco pipe and a friendly gesture. The French, never having heard of tobacco, took the Indians' intentions to be hostile and fired off a blank shot from a musket. The Indian was stunned, trembling with fright, and, quote, like a friar, pointed a finger at sky, ship, and sea as if he were invoking a blessing on us. Or maybe a curse. Perhaps it would have gone better for him if he were merely smoking a cigar out of his nose like the Tainos Indians in Cuba and the Bahamas. La Dauphine continued north. In space of a hundred leagues sailing, continues Verazzano. we found a very pleasant place situated amongst certain little steep hills, from amidst which the hills there ran down into the sea a great stream of water, which within the mouth was very deep. And from the sea to the mouth of Same with the tide, which we found to rise eight feet, any great vessel laden might pass up. There is no place that fits this description north of Kitty Hawk before one gets to New York Bay, which Verrazano reached on April 17, 1524, and which Morrison says, quote, never looked fairer than on this very first day when European eyes gazed upon it. The rest of Verrazano's brief account indicates that he anchored in the narrows just under the site of the beautiful bridge that would bear his name, however misspelled, 450 years hence. They took the ship's boat into the upper bay and there were greeted by any number of good-looking Indians in more than 30 canoes, cheerfully welcoming them. Unfortunately, the wind turned unfavorably and after only one day, the conservative Verrazano left the harbor that would one day become the most important in the new world. La Delfine headed east along the south shore of Long Island, eventually passing Montauk and then Block Island. Ever the classicist, Verrazano wrote, We discovered an island in the form of a triangle, distant from the mainland ten leagues about the bigness of the island of the roads. It was full of hills covered with trees, well-peopled, for we saw fires along the coast. Here, inadvertently and astonishingly, Verrazzano named a future State of the Union. Roger Williams... Founder of the colony and state to which Block Island has always belonged wrote a letter in 1637 dated at Aquidneck, now called by us Rhode Island. On 13 March 1644, the Colonial Assembly declared Aquidneck shall be henceforth called the Isle of Rhodes or Rhode Island. And in 1663, the name Rhode Island was applied to the colony. Roger Williams, a well-read gentleman and scholar, must have brought to New England a copy of either edition of Hacklett, which contains a translation of Verrazano's letter, and interpreted his island about the bigness of the island of Rhodes, full of hills covered with trees, as a Quidnick. That is the big island in Arragansett Bay, the future seat of Newport, and its shape does resemble that of Rhodes in the Aegean. Thus the smallest state of the Union owes her name to Roger Williams' mistaken notion of the island, which Verrazzano compared to Rhodes. I think that is very cool. Maybe Rhode Island should name something after Verrazzano. La Dauphine anchored at the mouth of Narragansett Bay and again encountered Indians. I mentioned this briefly in episode two and relying on Charles Mann, I reported that the Indians were from the Narragansett tribe. Morrison's quite specific that they were from the Wampanoag, whose domain extended over the eastern side of Narragansett Bay and southeastern Massachusetts. The Wampanoag would figure prominently around 100 years down the road when the pilgrims would land at the site of one of their abandoned villages, Patuxet. I do not know who is correct between Mann and Morrison, but Morrison provides useful supporting detail, so I lean a little bit that way. Since I have Bigger fish to fry at this point, I'll leave it to others, maybe one of our loyal and detail-oriented listeners, to dig deeper and set us all straight. La Dauphine, having missed the Chesapeake and the mouth of the Delaware at Cape May and having invested only a day at New York Bay, spent two weeks there in Newport Harbor, exploring some 30 miles inland. There, they noted fertile soil, woods of oak and walnut, flourishing game, fields of maize, and admirable Indian houses covered with mats, all of which we discussed a few episodes back. The local Indians were friendly and solicitous, as good-looking as always reported in these early encounters. They traded courteously in esteemed copper, obtained from tribes all the way in the Great Lakes, above all else, and visited Verrazano and his crew aboard ship there is no evidence that the French returned the courtesy by kidnapping any of them, which strikes me as good decision-making. On May 5th or 6th, La Dauphine set sail east and north through Vineyard Sound and Tucket Sound and Pollock Rip, which will mess up the Mayflower 96 years later, sending her back to her eventual first landing site at Provincetown. La Dauphine saw the coast of Maine at Casco Bay, which is near today's Portland and Brunswick. Here we get to Verrazzano's encounter with the Abenaki, who are not even remotely friendly. I talked about this a bit in episode two using Charles Mann's account. If you listen to that, you will recall that the Abenaki would trade only at, shall we say, social distance, passing goods in a basket along a line and refusing all encounters at close proximity with the French. They also jeered the French, exhibiting their bare behinds and laughing immodestly, as Verrazano wrote. As Mann and Morrison both point out, these Indians, unlike those further south, must have had experience with Europeans, probably the English, who had been fishing along that coast for 20 or more years. Verrazano didn't know that, though, and he named the area the Land of Bad People. Mainers, don't blame me. We report, you decide. From Maine, La Dauphine worked its way up the coast, past Nova Scotia, and then, having consumed most of its stores, set a course for home, arriving back in Dieppe on July 8, 1524. Verrazzano dated his letter to Francois Premier that very day. France, it would turn out, would be distracted and her next great explorer, Jacques Cartier, would travel far to the north in modern Canada, outside of our self-imposed mandate. The French would miss the opportunity to figure out whether Pamlico Sound really was the Pacific Ocean. While that would have been a manifest waste of time, they might have discovered the Chesapeake, the mouth of the Delaware, or explored the Hudson. The French would do none of these things though, so Verrazzano's legacy would diminish until the Italian history people in Brooklyn got the idea of promoting him and the bridge. Perhaps Verrazzano also damaged his legacy by missing the significance of those important bays along the American coast, and thereby leaving them to the Dutch, the Swedes, and eventually the English. With all our technology, it is hard to imagine how that could happen, but in fact, explorers missed the obvious all the time. Cook missed Sydney Harbor, and Drake and all the miscellaneous Spaniards missed the Golden Gate and San Francisco Bay, which were discovered by an overland expedition. So what happened to Verrazano? In 1527, he snuck through Portuguese patrols through Brazil and returned to Dieppe in mid-September of that year with a profitable load of some particular sort of Brazil wood, which was apparently in great demand for the dyeing of cloth. Then he made his fateful third voyage, leaving Dieppe in the spring of 1528, again aiming for Brazil. I'll turn it over to Morrison from here. Quote, this fleet crossed the Atlantic by a route slightly north of Columbus's, first raising the coast of Florida. Verrazano sailed to the Bahamas and then shaped a course for the Isthmus of Darien, today's Panama and Colombia, for a possible strait En route, he changed his mind and followed the chain of the Lesser Antilles. There he made the mistake of anchoring well offshore as he customarily did. Unfortunately, the island where he chose to call, probably Guadalupe, was inhabited by no gentle tribe of Indians, but by the ferocious, man-eating Caribs. The Verzano brothers rowed shoreward in the ship's boat. A crowd of natives waited at the water's edge, licking their chops at the prospect of a human lunch. But the French as yet knew not of this nation of cannibals. Giovanni innocently waited ashore while his brother and the boat's crew plied their oars far enough off the beach to avoid the breakers. The Caribs overpowered and killed the great navigator, then cut up and ate his still quivering body whilst his brother looked on helplessly, seeing, quote, the sand ruddy with fraternal blood. The ships were anchored too far offshore to render gunfire support. 16th century exploration was not for sissies. On that happy note, we'll end it here for today. Thank you again for listening. Please subscribe to the History of the Americans and your podcatcher of choice. Rate us, as you would an excellent Uber driver. And if the spirit moves you, please write a review on Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. We also now have a Facebook page, which you can find by searching in the usual way. There we will post alerts of new episodes and other interesting bits from American history that we happen to stumble upon. As always, please send me comments, criticisms, corrections, questions, and pats on the back by email. At the of the Americans at gmail.com or on the website for the podcast, thehistoryoftheamericans.com. Until next time, thank you again.